Well, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, and specifically we're going to be taking a look today at chapter 5 and then reading verses 9 through 16. So Song of Solomon, verses 9 through 16. Remember the key to finding the song is to go to Psalms and turn right. All right. Well, while you're uh, getting to the particular place where we're at, just to remind you the context, you'll remember that the Shulamite had had, a, uh, had had this dream. It was similar to a dream that she had had before where she was searching for her beloved within the city. Uh, the first time that uh, she dreamt that, she found him, and she was able to bring him uh, back eventually to the house of her mother. Now they have married, uh, but there was something that came between them. Uh, the, uh, the beloved, that is uh, Solomon, comes to the Shulamite, and she's already in bed. She's already sleeping. She says, oh, no, I've taken off my shoes. I've washed my feet, or sandals, rather. Uh, I've uh, taken off my garments. I, I can't get up to open the door for him. Uh, but eventually she does get up. Her heart is stirred. Her, her love to him and revives, and she gets up, and she goes to the door, but she discovers he's gone. So she goes into the city, and you have this dream sequence of she's searching for him and the watchmen discover her and they wound her and take away her veil and so she cries out and charges the uh, the women uh, the maidens of Jerusalem uh, to search for her loved one we'll talk about that in just a little while but that's where we're at in the uh, in the song before we uh, go to the song though let us go to the one who gave us this this beloved poem and let's ask for his help in understanding it God our father we thank you so much that you have given us aids to understand our relationships, not just our relationship to our loved ones here on earth and the difficulties of the marriage relationship, which you, uh, you, you spell out, Lord, even this ideal vision of marriage, yet there is trouble uh, that must be resolved, reconciliation that must happen. And also, Lord, we thank you that you do more than that. Through the relationship between husband and wife here on earth, you show us a picture of our relationship to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. We, the church members, the bride. Imperfect as we are, Lord, you show us your love for us, and you have us look at what you will make of us when we will be someday truly beautiful and spotless. How we long for that day. In the meantime, help us to understand your word, put your spirit within us, and help me to divide it aright, so that I would say nothing to your people that is not in keeping with your word. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 16. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. The daughters of Jerusalem. What is your beloved more than any other beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you so charge us? The Shulamite. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are like lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. 
Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You remember that uh, in her dream, she, the Shulamite, searched for her beloved. And it was rather like the church uh, after uh, growing, let us say, less than intense in our love, how we have had our feelings stirred up once again and we search for Christ. But she went out and she looked for him and she was wounded by the watchman. She couldn't find him. So she had said, if you look back in verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am lovesick. Uh, the daughters of Jerusalem, of course, replied, and they asked, what is your beloved more than any other beloved? Why are you charging us like this? Why is he so special? Why is he so important? And the Shulamite, of course, answers. Uh, now, note one thing uh, here immediately. The daughters of Jerusalem, they use Solomon's term of endearment. They call her fairest among women. It's a reminder, again, of the idealized nature of the poem, but also a reminder of the way that Christ thinks about the church, that we are the fairest. The, uh, in, the earth may not think much of us. The world certainly pours its opprobrium upon the church, but we are beloved, special. We are, as the Old Testament puts it frequently, uh, we are the sagula of God, the special treasure, the beloved, the apple of his eye. Again and again and again, he uses these terms of endearment these superlatives that are above all others. We look at the church on earth and we see something that is not exactly perfect, to put it quite uh, bluntly. We are far from perfection. We are far from what we should be. And yet, because the Lord loves us and because he has set his love upon us, he is making something of us. And he has said that he will be the author and the finisher of that good work. So the daughters use that term of endearment fairest among women, reminding us once again of the love of God for his chosen. And she answers with this paean of praise. She says, essentially, my love, let me tell you about my love. And this should be a natural response, of course, to the person who is deeply in love. It should be easy for them to explain what is lovable about that person that they love, those qualities that they love. Now, they may not be exactly accurate in their description of this person. They may have, uh, shall we say, a, a rather rosy view of the one whom they love. But nonetheless, it should be something that pours easily out of their heart. It shouldn't be the case where, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen, it's not a great movie, I'm not recommending it, do not go home and search on Amazon or something. Um, at Popeye by Robin Williams, Olive Oil sings this song uh, about Brutus, who she is going to marry, or Bluto, isn't it Bluto or is it Brutus? Brutus, okay, so in any event. Uh, but she sings... He's large. She's trying to explain to the other girls what's, what's good about him. And she keeps coming back to, he's large, large. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not much to qualify him as, as, and it becomes very clear through the song that he's not really her choice, that she doesn't think that much about him, not in the way that she is, of course, going to love and adore later on Popeye, but getting away from bad films from the 1980s. Uh, and back to the word of God, she 
That is, the Shulamite has no difficulty telling the maidens of Jerusalem why she loves him. She describes him. Um, and just as it should be natural for the person who is in love to be able to describe what's lovable about their loved one, it should be natural for the Christian to be able to describe why they love Christ. It should be something that flows out of our hearts. We should have that, that constant desire to tell others about Jesus. My Lord, let me tell you about my Lord. Let me explain to you why Jesus is so lovely, why he is so important to me. That should be second nature to you. And if you can't do it, well, then there's, there's a problem there. In any event, her response is this, this celebration of her beloved's matchless beauty. Uh, and it's very similar, you remember, to the way that he celebrated her beauty in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the description starts with this general statement about the, the, the beauty of her beloved. Um, it starts, uh, once again, just the way his did. It starts in the safe zone with the head and then gradually moves downwards towards the legs, the extremities, and, and so on. And there's this comparison with the finest of all things. And then finally, there's this general affirmation at the very end. She describes his parts individually and then sums it all up with this wonderful description of his beauty. So what does she say of him? Well, first, in the uh, rather tepid description that we have in the NKJV, she describes him as white and ruddy. Now, the word there, white, uh, is not probably a good translation. White, we would think of, of uh, skin color, but it actually means radiant. It means shimmering, okay? It's more of a, of a complexion. This, this guy glows rather than an identical you know, answer. What did he look like? Well, he was a white dude, you know. Um, that's not what she's saying. She says he is glowing, okay? He is radiant. He is just everything, okay? Then she goes on to describe him as ruddy. Now, ruddy is not a word that we use very often in English any longer. Uh, ruddy, uh, Webster's 1828 says, of a red color, of a lively flesh color, or the color of human skin in high health. Thus we say, ruddy cheeks, ruddy lips, a ruddy face of skin, a ruddy youth, and in poetic language, ruddy fruit. But the word is chiefly applied to the human skin. The idea is healthy, glowing, you know, that uh, the, the red face, uh, not red-faced as an apoplectic or angry or, you know, out of breath or anything like that, but rosy-cheeked, that kind of thing, and happy. Uh, the word in the Hebrew is actually odum. Uh, it means red, and it's related grammatically to uh, the name Edom for that particular nation that was established by Esau. It means uh, Edom literally means this red. Uh, Esau means red, so everything's red, 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 but uh, he's, he's ruddy in color. Um, and it harkens back any, anybody reading this uh, who was versed in the Old Testament would immediately think of which king of Israel when the description ruddy comes out. David, very good. First Samuel 16, 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. David was the healthy shepherd. He had ruddy cheeks and so on. He was, uh, he was reddish in his complexion, but a healthy red. Uh, she also describes him as Dagul, which is distinguished. He's a mighty man. You could put him in a line of 10,000 
and you would immediately still be able to pick him out. He's the one. He's the leader of men. He is a man of battle. He is no ordinary individual. He doesn't fade into the background. He stands out head and shoulders above all the rest. And then she says of his head, it is radiant. It is like gold, pure gold, twice refined, is the literal definition of the word that's used there. Now, this too is not his hair color. She's not saying that he has golden hair because she goes on to describe his hair as black as a raven, shimmering like a raven's feathers, and deep, deep black. Now, she's saying his face, uh, rather, is perfect. It glows. And then she goes on to describe his, his hair with a word that's only used to describe hair in this book. Um, there are several descriptions. That's one of the reasons why um, analyzing the poetry sometimes in Song of Songs becomes difficult. I've given you this rule many times. Uh, there's the, the rule of, of uh, interpretation in the Bible is the rule of faith, the analoga fide. What do we do in order to understand a verse in a particular place which is difficult to understand? The answer is we go elsewhere where that word or that phrase or that idea is mentioned and we interpret scripture using scripture, but occasionally we get words that aren't used to describe people, for instance, within the Song of Songs. It's rather a singular poem. She describes his hair as tatalim, uh, literally like clusters of dates. Um, <laughs> I, I never thought of, looked at hair and said, man, your hair is like clusters of dates. But then again, I've never looked at anybody's body and said, flock of goats. That's, you know, so there are descriptions here that just uh, do, not, do not immediately come naturally. But uh, the idea is that they are thick, that they are wavy, that it's not necessarily arranged in an organized way, not ordinary flat hair. Uh, he's got great hair, apparently. Anyway, so verse 12, she goes on, and we have the reappearance of dove's eyes. As I said before, commentators go nuts trying to explain why eyes are compared to doves. Apparently, it was the, the fashion at that point in time. If somebody had particularly attractive eyes, they had dove's eyes. They are soft, or they are, they are beautiful, like the, the shimmering feathers of a, of a dove. Uh, and uh, he has dove's eyes, but in this case, there's also a reference to the abundance of moisture. And then she says, washed with milk. What is she trying to get at? Well, most likely, she's trying to say his eyes sparkle. They're alive. They're like the shimmer that you see. Uh, you must have experienced this at some point. The shimmer of sunlight on a lake as the, uh, the wind is moving over it on a sunny day. That is what her eyes or his eyes remind her of. A beautiful picture and also washed with white. The idea that his eyes are perfectly or the... the uh, What's the outer part? Well, it's not the pupil. The iris, right? The iris is perfectly white there. Uh, no bloodshot dry eyes here. And most importantly, uh, as the eyes are the windows of the soul, his eyes are not unemotional. As he looks at her, he shows his love. They sparkle. These are the eyes of a soul that is filled with love and is pure and unsullied. And so she loves his eyes. Then she goes on to his cheeks. His cheeks, of course, would have been covered by what? A beard. Okay, you, uh, that, was, that was part of the religious law. You were supposed to have a manly beard. Such a shame that, well, anyway, moving on. <laughs> his, 
His beard, she describes, as like beds of spices, mounds of of sweet-smelling herbs. So I don't think she's referring to you can smell what he ate last night in his beard. That's sometimes the case with guys or what he smoked. But um, it's... There's, there's a smell, there's a particular smell to him that she loves. Uh, his lips she associates with lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Now, the idea is, uh, I, I love to have my nose near his face, all right? The, and it's associated, again, with, with kissing. Uh, that's the association that's at work here. Um, Ian Duguid... <laughs> puts it quite frankly, he said, it's not so much a lifelike description of the appearance of his face as an expressed longing for her nose to be close enough to the man's cheeks for her to smell his scent and for her lips to be able to graze among the lilies of his lips. She likes to kiss him. She likes to snuggle and stuff like that, which is natural, obviously, for those who are in love. It should be the case that, uh, that you remember and you appreciate the smell of your beloved um, I've used this illustration before, but I have met uh, uh, widows and widowers who have kept their beloved's garments simply because they, they miss their smell, and there's nothing that brings back the memories of them like their smell. Well, she loves his smell. It reminds her of him. It's manly. It's good. It's so on. I don't know what soap he used, but regardless, it's not Old Spice. Moving on. Verse 14. Once again, uh, in his description of her, he, he moves down or she, rather, moves down uh, in her description of him, his body. Um, And she uses descriptions that, in some senses, would be more befitting for a statue, but uh, she's describing him as statuesque in in some ways. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. Uh, Gold uh, is, is described in describing all of his extremities. It's a way of simply saying the best. Okay, his hands, they're the best. His feet, they're the best. Nothing is better than that. They are uh, paz, not zahab, not common gold. They're fine gold. And his fingertips, they're like gemstones. Now, she didn't mean they're hard. They scratch me. I hate it when, you know, he touches me. It's, but rather, it's a, uh, it's a way of saying he's precious. Every part of his body is precious to me. It's an overall description of individual parts. His belly, she says, is ivory. Um, this could be a reference. Commentators have actually made this point. She could be saying he has six-pack abs. Um, uh, but uh, it's probably, you know, he is fit. He's, he's a warrior. His abdominal muscles are flat and hard like ivory. He's not a flabby man. Um, and possibly like polished ivory. Once again, uh, perfection. And also keep in mind that in her descriptions, uh, she is married at this point, so she is not describing her beloved clothed. She is describing him as he really is. So uh, she describes his legs as alabaster columns. Alabaster columns were incredibly rare, incredibly expensive, incredibly beautiful. These are not your ordinary legs. And his feet, again, fine gold. They're They're just perfect, absolutely. His countenance, she says, is like Lebanon. And that's reference to somebody who is tall and majestic like cedars. What is she saying? He is, he's kingly in every way. He stands out. He is somebody who you look at him, and uh, to her, she, she, her breath is taken away by looking at him. His mouth, again, uh, is sweet. This is a reference. You should get this by now. This is a reference to kissing. It's kissing, kissing, kissing all through the, uh, through the book. Um, and then she sums him up. She's gone through the various parts. She said they're perfect. This is why they're perfect. This is what they look like. This is what they remind me of, and so on. And then she says bringing everything together, he is altogether lovely. There is no imperfection there. 
Nothing at all wrong with him. Now, normally, hearing this from somebody, we would say, ah, here's the language of young love. Here is the, uh, um, the, the doughy-eyed, I'm not seeing you as you really are. I'm actually projecting my perfect opinions of you that exist right now upon you. That's how I see you. But just wait a decade. I will have found every imperfection and it will have become so magnified. Oh, my word. It's amazing how you can go from, from absolutely perfect, you know, uh, David uh, by Michelangelo uh, to, oh, I, I don't know, um, some sort of bad graffiti in just, a, a, you know, a few years. But the, um, or Picasso, that would be a better, uh, better analogy. You know, you go suddenly, you know, the eyes that were perfect are now like this. And, you know, on the other side of the head. But that's what a decade of living together with actual sinners does. You discover each other's imperfections, but hopefully they don't overwhelm you. Hopefully you still love the person, even though you have gone uh, from considering them to be Adonis to, you know, something more like Alpo or, you know, um, in any event. But this is not... This is not like that. This is the ideal love story, idealized. This is the picture, remember, of the bride of Christ admiring the Savior, Jesus Christ. Normally, we would say, well, he's not that great. Come on, you're, you're, you're overstressing it. But when it comes to the bride adoring the bridegroom, when the bride is the church and the bridegroom is Christ, yes, he really is perfect. He really is altogether lovely. And along those lines, we note this, we move, as she describes him, from this objective description of his parts and so on to the, to the critical subjective analysis, the subjective relationship. In marriage, of course, it's not enough to just think of someone as, uh, as attractive. There also has to be an emotional relationship there. There must be a tie, a bond, a, a, a communion. So too with the believer's relationship to Christ it's important that they not just admire things about him. Uh, they can look and say, yes, yes, he accomplished, he accomplished great things. Uh, I admire his nature. I uh, admire his work. I can look at it objectively and say, Jesus did some pretty amazing things. But what is that to you? That's not a relationship. That's an essay. And it, the relationship the believer has with Christ is more than simply an objective analysis or a report on the features of Christ. It's more than simply a systematic theology. The believer can know many great doctrinal truths about the Lord and yet be unaffected by all of them. That is not what is necessary when we talk about faith. In true faith, it must be possible for the believer to be able to say of Christ, this is my beloved and this is my friend. To have that actual relationship, to have the actual tie with the Savior himself. Now, unlike the way that long acquaintance has a tendency to make us more aware of our spouse's flaws, it should be exactly the reverse in our relationship to Christ, shouldn't it? Long relationship should make us more and more aware of his perfections, more and more in love with him, more and more appreciative of him, more and more desirous of being like him and spending time in his presence. The believer's appreciation for Christ should grow deeper, 
more abiding, more mature as time goes on. G.I. Williamson puts it very well when he says that. This is, uh, that rather, is the beauty of the way that it is also in our relationship with Christ. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And the deeper your awareness of the love of Christ, what he did for you, the more out of your heart will flow praise and adoration. And you also will say he is the fairest among 10,000, the one who is altogether lovely. It is his love that brings that response from the church. Now, I must tell you, applying this, brothers and sisters, just as others, can never really appreciate the one you love as much as you do because you do not know them like you do. They do not know this person. They don't know their smell. They don't long for the sweetness of their lips and so on. Uh, In the same way, I have to say this, those outside the church, those outside of a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ can never really understand what that relationship is about because they have not experienced it. I, for instance, could tell you, I have eaten many apples. I am an appreciator of great apples, all right? But I cannot explain to you, really, what an apple tastes like. I can give you maybe a few analogies. I can talk about firmness or crispness of the flesh of the apple, the outside. I can, I can say, well, it's, you know, this part is red. It's, it's a ruddy fruit, as the, the ancients would put it, or this one's a, a golden delicious. It's got a yellow or a green appearance and stuff like that. I can talk about it being tart. I can talk about it being sour. I can talk about it being sweet. But that isn't the same as eating an apple, is it? It's an entirely different experience that, that, overwhelms a, a number of the senses. There's a smell, there's a, there's a sensation, there's, and there's also memories associated with various apples. Wine, uh, I don't know why it is, but wine sap apples in particular immediately transport me back to the UK into my childhood because that apparently was an apple that I was given at that point. Golden delicious, or what? Is, red delicious, which is the worst apple on the face of the planet, I have to tell you. I've just offended, I know, many people. Remind me of my awful childhood in New Jersey. Okay, so this is, uh, these are apples that bring back memories as I'm eating them and so on. I, I can't explain that to people. I can't take them into the, to the wealth of, of my experience with apples, just as I cannot take you really into the depths of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot explain to you what it is to feel the joy of your salvation. I cannot explain to you what it is to feel uh, the depth of, of, of true guilt when you realize you've sinned against the Christ whom you love. I cannot explain to you the, the times when you feel that, that, that awful um, distance between yourself and God when you're praying as though your, your prayers are landing on the floor or the, or the joy of knowing that the Lord has communicated something to you, or when you read something in somebody else's words and you say, yes, that's the Christ whom I love as well, and recognize it immediately. Or just the contentment of knowing that you are Christian and you are saved, knowing that there is one who listens to you, all of these things. It's almost impossible to explain unless you have experienced it yourself. It's why the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. It's one thing to describe a food. It's an entirely different thing to taste a food. It's one thing to talk about Christ. It's an entirely different thing to close with Christ and to know him by faith. And so I can tell you, you need to do this, but I can't do it for you. 
I can't explain what it's like. I can't explain what the relationship of marriage is like to those who have not entered into it. The highs, the lows, the difficulties, the valleys, and the, and the mountaintops, and, and the experience, the long experience, just as I can't explain to you what it is really to walk for your entire life with Christ. But I can tell you it's wonderful. It is beyond comparison. There is nothing like it. There is nothing as good. I would not part, and I tell you this, after having walked with Christ for decades, I would not part with Christ for anything in the world. You could offer me all of the money. You could offer me all the kingdoms. You could make me Klaus Schwab overnight and put me in charge of the WEF, so I'd have to listen to lizard man music that have tremendous amounts of money and control and so on. I wouldn't want it, none of it. Not just because I don't like lizard man music, but, but because nothing compares to Christ. Nothing compares to the relationship, the, the knowing that you're saved, knowing what is ahead of you, the contentment that comes from a relationship with him, and also that eager longing for what is to come. I tell you, as I get older, and I hope you Christians who are aging as well, everybody is, but I hope the desire to see him becomes more and more acute on a regular basis. I, I want to see Christ. I no longer want to see as through a glass darkly, but face to face. I want to be in the presence of my Savior. I want to be in the presence of that multitude that no man can number. I want to have an end to my own sin, the sin I hate the most. I hate the sins that are in the world, yes. I hate what we do to children in the world today. I hate all of that, yes, I do. But the sins I hate the most are the ones that I walk around with all day that are in my heart. I want them gone. I want them gone forever. I no longer want to have to worry about my reactions to things. I long for that day when I will be with my Savior at the fullness of what this table points us to, the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a beautiful, beautiful moment that will be. And so therefore, I long to be in the presence of the one who is altogether lovely, just as she longed to be in the presence of the one who is altogether lovely and cried out, if you see him, tell him I am sick with love. That should be the Christian's experience here on earth that we are lovesick as long as we are away from Christ, that we long to be with him, and that we look forward to that day when we will be reunited and that forever. I hope that's what you're looking for. And if not, then I pity you, but I urge you to close with him by faith. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, this wonderful imagery of the love of the bride for the bridegroom, the perfections of the bridegroom. We pray, Lord, that we would have that kind of appreciation for our beloved here on earth, the one whom you give us to be a spouse. But we pray far more than that, that all here would know Christ in this way, would know him as altogether lovely, their beloved and their friend, the one that they can go to, the one they trust, the one who will always listen to them, the one who answers when they call, and who is never further than a prayer and whom we will see forever. That is what we desire the most, Lord. May it come quickly. And we pray this.